بأن إصلاح البلد لن يكون إلا بحكومة أغلبية وطنية. The reform of the country will only be done with a national majority government. We, the Sadrist bloc, form the majority. Only us. Iraq, June 12, 2022. Lawmakers loyal to Shia Muslim cleric Muqdada al-Sadr resign en masse in parliament. Seven months earlier, the populist leader clinched the largest share of seats of any party in the October general election. However, efforts to translate seats into power proved near impossible. Sadr's non-traditional alliance with Sunni blocs and Kurdish groups failed to secure the two-thirds majority needed to elect a president. Thus, the process of forming a government was impeded. Attempts to persuade other Shia groups to join his coalition and by extension abandoned chances of one unified Shia bloc were also futile. An early October election, ironically, turned into a drawn-out political deadlock. And, all the while, the clock was ticking. Oil revenues skyrocketed following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Iraq was getting richer, but its people, still without a government or federal budget, couldn't see or reap the benefits. Inflation and unemployment soared, pushing more and more families into poverty. Long-standing grievances over mismanagement and corruption that sparked the October 2019 protests were boiling over. So, come June, Sadr throws a political curveball and calls on his 73 MPs to quit. Was the populist figure throwing in the towel? Or was this a strategic move to take the Sadrists out of parliament and back onto the streets among the Iraqi people? Where does this leave the rival Shia coordination framework, now charged with the difficult task of forming a government amid rising political tempers? And what about the Iraqi people? Will they see their demands for security, stability, growth, infrastructure and accountability addressed? I'm Rosie McCabe. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. So October 2019... There were nationwide protests. This is Hamza Haddad, a visiting fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations who researches and writes on Iraq. He's speaking to us from Baghdad. And these protests went on for months and they ended up forcing the government to resign. And this brought in a new government. And part of their demands with this new government was to hold early elections. It took many months, and but the early elections ended up happening in October 2021, so two years after those uh, protests took place. October 2019 saw the largest protest movement in post-2003 Iraqi history. Mass demonstrations took hold in Baghdad and other parts of the country as citizens demanded an end to widespread corruption, unemployment and poor public services. Known as the Tushreen Uprising, the movement was driven by the country's youth. In Iraq, over half of the population is under 25. Many of those involved in the Tushreen movement had not lived under former dictator Saddam Hussein. Instead, they had lived under a fragmented state, plagued by instability, 
corruption and political inactivity following the US-led invasion. And so in Iraq, this was the sixth parliamentary election since 2003, the fifth under the current uh, constitution. And if you look at them, historically, the average of government formation usually takes five and a half months. The longest we had was nine months back in 2010, and we're creeping up on that. And it looks like by the time a government is, a prime minister is nominated and a cabinet is elected or voted in by parliament, it will look like it's going to break that record of how long it takes. Hamza explained that post-2003 Iraqi politics demands a high level of consensus. For example... The constitution requires a two-thirds majority among parliamentarians to elect a president. In other words, 220 votes. In these elections, we've yet to have a party in an election win 50% plus one. So 165 out of 329 seats. No one's ever done that before. The closest anyone did that came to that was Nuri Maliki in 2014. State of Law Coalition won 92 seats. In 2010, Ayad Alawi won 91 seats, Maliki won 89. So we've had people that wouldn't have won more than Sadat, but that's still very far away from the 165 that you need to form a government. The Sadarists increased their seat tally from 54 in 2018 to 73 in 2021. However, even after forming an alliance, they were still short of securing the necessary votes to establish a national majority government. They secured 180 out of the 220 votes needed. The Sadist movement won 73 seats. They went into a tripartite alliance with a Kurdish party, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, and Mohammed um, al-Halbusi's alliance from the Sunni component. And even then, they couldn't hit the 220 seats needed to, ha- to hold quorum, to, to elect a president. So not only do you, do you actually need 50% plus one, but you actually need more than that just to get the government formation process moving forward. And so... This election was no different to that before, but it was just a new winner who struggled to be able to, to move forward. And so that's where you saw a lot of the, uh, the stalling take place. It isn't so much the players, but the system itself that produces protracted stalemates. This is an argument we'll return to later. In the meantime, who is Muqtada al-Sada? Sada rose to fame in the aftermath of the 2003 US invasion which won him acclaim amongst the Shia working-class communities. His supporters also fought fellow Iraqis and government forces, leading to allegations that they kidnapped and murdered thousands of civilians during the country's sectarian civil war. In 2007, Sadr fled to Iran, abandoning political life for a few years. However, he returned in 2011 and has since inched further away from the battlefield to the ballot box, placing himself at the centre of Iraqi politics. And why did the maverick cleric with the largest share of seats resign? It is a bit surprising because, you know, this whole time he's been saying we either form a majority government and there's an opposition or we don't. Well, he didn't have to resign to be in opposition. He could have been an opposition bloc in parliament. And so that's where the resignation took everyone by surprise, including myself. At the time when it first happened, I thought this was just a move to try to get greater concessions from the other political parties. But when... The MPs, actually, we had new MPs being sworn in and finalized that decision. Then it became, it became clear that, no, this is actually happening. And so we're left to wonder, what is Muqtada set out to get from this? Following the mass resignations, seats formerly held by the Sadrists defaulted to candidates with the second highest number of votes during the October poll. 
This empowered Sada's rivals. The Shia Coordination Framework, or SCF, among the Iran-backed Shia factions. The SCF is a coalition movement composed of several pro-Iran Shia parties and is now leading the charge to form a government. Now, in the short term, he's able to deflect blame from government formation, from the current government's lack of services being provided. In the long run, it could it could increase his popularity and legitimacy amongst the people because he can say, I'm not part of this corrupt government, vote for me next time. But then the question is going to be, how long is he going to give this government a chance? Is it going to be one year and then he starts to go out and have protests and, and put more pressure on? Or does he give, it, give them their full term and play the long run? Sada has no plan to keep out of the spotlight, it seems. Well, the man has been quite unpredictable lately in, in later years. This is Yasser al-Maliki, a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute and also a golf analyst with the Middle East Economic Survey. He is also someone who, in a way, has become a tactful political player in the scene, not as before, where he was more on margins and, you know, trying to do things in a more extreme way, although this could also be considered extreme politically. To me, what I would think is, I think he threw the towel. He threw the towel because simply he cannot form a government. It has been nine months. He has tried to approach other players, but still he couldn't. So I think it was some sort of a smart move, actually, for him to protect his existing gains. Sada hopes to be able to influence politics and policy while being outside the government. At the same time, the cleric can rekindle relationships with core supporters, going back to his voter base in Sada City, a district in Baghdad. By the end of the day, even outside government, Mr. Sada is still very much effective. I mean, he can move hundreds of thousands of protesters on the streets. Just this week, you know, the Sadrists have been threatening with the protests. They, one thing that they are asking for is to organize, or he has instructed his, his followers to do, is to organize a large Friday player in their stronghold of Sadr City in Baghdad this week. So it could be just pragmatically, just, you know, smoke and mirrors, or it could be something else. I mean, he could topple the next government easily. Events from 2019 has shown that he could be very effective. And at the same time, he could stand to derail the process of forming a government anyway. For Iraqi lawmakers still in parliament, this leaves them in a precarious position, with an uncertain, fraught road ahead. The SCF must negotiate grievances and pressures from the streets, inflamed by the Sadarists, together with internal squabbles and feuds. Where to start? Yasser said they must address two major political challenges. Firstly, they have to come to an agreement over choosing the next prime minister, a compromise candidate within the SEF itself. That is acceptable to major forces from SOL, which is the state of law alliance headed by former prime minister Maliki Fatah Alliance, headed by Hadil Amri, the Iran-backed PMU factions. You know, the group was kept together throughout these past nine months by this desire to counter Mr. Muqtada Sadr. There is another factor there, which is Iranian backing that they had. Um, you could think of it as the glue that kept everything together. Iran has long been involved in Iraqi politics. Sadr, who it was reported previously had close ties with Tehran, sought to counter Iranian influence with his triple alliance. But the mass resignations of the Sadrists is believed to have gifted Iran 
greater influence over lawmakers and any new government. While being mindful of Tehran's role, it's important not to reduce Iraqi politics to pro-Iran or anti-Iran factions, say some analysts. For many Iraqis, their policy is Iraq first above all else. Recently, in the past few days, and I don't know if this is a rumor or serious, people have been talking about, you know, former Prime Minister Maliki trying to actually become Prime Minister again. Now, Mr. Maliki is the front runner within the SEF itself in terms of the number of seats. He will definitely press to influence who the next PM is. Other players within the SEF are already feeling the pressure from that, but mistakenly, we would believe that former prime minister wants to become prime minister again, because politically he has grown larger than the post itself. He has become a political leader within a small circle of personas in Iraq. After selecting a prime minister, the second challenge for the SCF is reaching out to Sunnis and Kurds to form a cabinet. They will have to come to some sort of a broader agreement with these actors in terms of Cabinet positions, which must both be divided on ethno-sectarian lines as part of this national unity government, while taking into consideration the seats that each side controls. And if things weren't challenging already, there's also an extra layer of complexity to this political jigsaw. The SCF must contend with existing rifts between Kurdish parties. Uh, The two main Kurdish parties, the KDP and the PUK, the Kurdistan Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, they must put their differences aside and nominate a Kurd to become the president of the country. Now, this is something that has proven to be challenging over the past few months, since the PUK maintains that it's historically and by tradition that they hold this position, while the KDP, as the frontrunner and the winner of most Kurdish seats, They aim to take that position, that leadership position within the country. The Kurdistan Democratic Party, KDP, and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, PUK, are Iraq's two largest Kurdish parties. An unofficial agreement between the KDP and PUK divides political power between them in Baghdad and the autonomous Kurdish region. The KDP maintains the presidency in the Kurdistan regional government as well as some ministries in Baghdad, while the PUK usually takes the Iraqi presidency. The KDP, however, challenged this post-2003 custom. They made a bid for both the Kurdish and Iraqi presidencies. Bolstered by electoral success in October, the KDP formed an alliance with the Sadrists, which has now collapsed. So the KDP now is under so much pressure under this challenge to unite the Kurdish front and to protect Kurdish gains in Baghdad, all while the PUK is still pivoting towards the Shia coordination framework and perhaps, you know, a future central, very central, by the way, government that the SEF may eventually form. A united Kurdish front and Kurdish allyship with Baghdad will be a monstrous feat, especially given the ever-looming oily question in the background of Iraqi politics. It has been a long time, about 50 years, since Iraq achieved revenues of about $11 billion a month. This is a big number. Iraq has the world's fifth largest known oil reserves, 
behind Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Canada and Iran. It is OPEC's second largest oil producer, with the majority of its resources coming from southern parts of the country. Ongoing disputes between Baghdad and the Kurdistan regional government have hampered oil production in recent years, as authorities wrestle over who has control of Iraq's resources and the ample revenues. Now, one of the emerging challenges that the KDP is facing is basically the recent ruling by the Supreme Court on against Iraqi Kurdistan's independent oil sector. And this has been coupled with tax on the energy infrastructure there. And this comes all on top of existing Erbil-Baghdad disagreements over budgetary allocations and so many other issues. In February, Iraq's Supreme Federal Court ruled that Kurdistan's oil and gas law was unconstitutional. The court then ordered lawmakers in Baghdad to force Kurds to hand over supplies. Kurdish authorities rejected the decision, calling it politically motivated, and earlier this week voted to amend the law, further complicating tensions with Baghdad. So it's at its core, it's really a political like, card that's being used between the central government and the Kurdistan government. This is Zainab Shukka, a professor at Sam Houston State University who specialises in the sociology and political economy of Iraq. They've been kind of talking about the, you know, control over oil and gas production and, and export in the Kurdistan region for a while now. And, the, you know, the courts will come up with decisions and, you know, Kurdistan will not listen to decisions and all of that. So this has been like a couple of years in the making. Right now, Kurdish authorities, despite facing a legitimacy crisis in their own region, have the ace card. Well, now Kurdistan can use it to wave that card because, you know, to pick a prime minister and to, to form a government, you really need the support and the cooperation of the Kurdish party. What I think is interesting is, is again, it's oil, right? It's not anything else because, you know, oil is the big sort of the big negotiation card anywhere. And so they are just using it in a way to pressure each other, both, again, sort of equal in that sense. The Kurdish government and the Kurdish region is uh, sort of not weaker or stronger than the Iraqi government. They are kind of equal in terms of political influence, the use of force and the use of legitimacy and so on. They are just basically using the threat of oil against each other to achieve political outcomes. For Zainab, what lies behind disputes over oil, the presidency and the political deadlock is not the failure of individuals, but the flaws of the Iraqi state. Basically, don't spend all your time obsessing over what Sadr is doing or not doing, or what Kurdish authorities are doing or not doing. Each of these elements belongs to a wider picture. I will consider the election sort of like a micro-event, and I think in order for us to understand how did we get here, it's really important to understand what is the macro conditions or structural conditions that produced not only the train and the October elections that followed, but also the effects of these things for the past couple months. Iraq is a hybrid regime, Zainab explains, dependent on one resource, oil. When you are depending on oil and gas, in the case of Iraq specifically oil, it produces what we call a resource curse. 
So that resource curse, which sort of have been used as a theory to kind of explain why democracy really never emerged in the Middle East in the first place. And one theory, of course, is not the only thing because it's combined with like cultural factors and combined with individual like agency, political actors, international involvement, etc. But one theory is that when you have an abundance of natural resources, specifically oil, you end up having a non-democratic system. Take, for example, Saddam Hussein's authoritarian state. And so we saw that in the pre-2003 era. We saw Saddam Hussein kind of running the show, an authoritarian state. And the reason is, is that oil requires an operation that tends to be controlled by the state. So it's a state-led process. When Saddam was toppled in 2003, instead of having one centralized state, you had different actors representing different social and cultural pockets. Each came to occupy different positions in parliament with its own claim to resources. As a result, Iraq lacks robust and resilient institutions that represent society at large. What it has is a parliament and voters divided along sectarian lines, resulting in repeated political deadlocks. And so there is way more sort of safety nets and protection sort of barriers to allow people to really hold politicians accountable in democratic regimes, which which just forces politicians to consider long-term projects versus the hybrid state where, you know, you can't really say anything. And it's a very sort of shifting, continuous, it's a game of chairs, basically, musical chairs, and people kind of switch positions without really a project. The Chishreen movement whilst noble in its ambitions, didn't offer an alternative political solution. So again, voters went to the polls and the country was stuck in a cycle of political infighting without addressing long-term issues. Basically, the system stayed the same and the players changed. This means Iraq can't address climate change threats such as growing water scarcity and repeated sandstorms or provide high-quality services like education. Close to 3.2 million Iraqis of school age are not receiving an education, according to UNICEF. But the question is how long this is going to work, especially with sort of the political deadlock that we are witnessing now and the problem that we're seeing now with sort of the accumulation of years and after years after years of infrastructure issues and climate change and all of that. So October... It's just a continuation and it's just like, I think it's a moment in not only post-2003 era, but really the the modern history of Iraq and its economic system and its dependency or these natural resources. And so it's sort of predictable how these things kind of keep generating themselves day after day. The question is how the people respond and even if the people respond all of a sudden with like, okay, fine, let's burn everything and like start a new government without an alternative political and specifically economic project, it's just going to repeat itself. One answer to breaking this cycle is economic diversification. This would reduce Iraq's dependency on a single resource, build its resilience and allow for better infrastructure, such as an education system that ensures all graduates can read and write. However, in order to start this process, you need a federal budget. And to get a federal budget, you need a government. Hamza Haddad again. So if a government is formed, the first thing I think that needs to be addressed is to have a federal budget passed. We're halfway through 2022. 
when there's been no federal budget. And it's very difficult for a government or a country to to keep moving forward without a budget, especially as Iraq is seeing historic oil revenues. And so there's a lot of money being pumped into the country and people aren't seeing it. And a lot of that has to do with corruption, which needs to be addressed. But a lot of it also has to do with the fact that we don't have a, a budget passed for 2022 to know how to spend it. After a federal budget, said Hamza, then you can address more long-standing issues. Try to have a government that actually attempts to address long-standing issues, being, you know, actually holding a census and helping help have that help us resolve issues with the Kurdistan regional government, such as over disputed territories, oil and gas law, the federal budget share of the Kurdistan region. But of course, in order to do this, you need relative stability in the Kurdistan region. It takes two to tango and you need a genuine government in Kurdistan region to do the same. And they're meant to have elections in October, but even those, it's very unlikely that they'll take place. So it's not like they're they're having their own problems as well. So if you have a new government in Baghdad, that they would try to address these issues, not with political agreements, but with actual law passed that's able to, to judge this. Because we've, we've seen in the past, you know, federal budgets being passed where every side is happy. And then the next year there's, you know, political disputes between them and they can't agree on it. But if you actually have Iraqi law that dictates, regardless of how people, how politicians are feeling with one another, then things can finally move forward. This brings us to the ultimate imperative question in Iraqi politics right now. How soon can a new government be formed, if at all? I mean, you've got the Eid holidays, July 9th and 10th. So mid-July, we'll probably start to see political parties return from holiday. I think parliament ends recess at that around that time. So you've got about two weeks in July to figure things out because once the beginning of August happens, you have Muharram, the Shia holiday of Ashura at that time again. So there's a lot of holidays upcoming that delay things in Iraq. If you don't have a president elected by late July and he or she nominates a, a prime minister, you know, we might not have a, a government sworn in by, by September or October, which, you know, would be a year since we had that election, which would be unfortunate. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to the new Arab Voice. This episode was produced and written by me, Rosie McCabe, with additional help from Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar Elphil. The new Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at the new Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.